0: Let us now return to that chapter we read, John chapter 17, and we'd like to choose verse 3 as our text. So John chapter 17, verse 3 as our text, and this reads, and this is eternal life, that they." might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And the title I'd like to give is, Knowing Jesus Christ, Knowing Jesus Christ. Last Lord's Day morning, we asked a question from our text in Mark. In Mark chapter 4, who is Jesus? And as we looked at that text, we said a number of things. We noticed that Jesus was a holy, sinless individual. We noticed that he had a eternal existence. The Son of God was eternal, and he became the Son of Man. We also noticed that he is the source of life. And he is the one who gives all life and who sustains all life. We also notice that he's got an unchangeable nature. And I think the text we quoted was that one in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. And we also notice that he has infinite power. Now, all of these things that we've noted there, can only be ascribed to God. Can only be ascribed to God. And therefore, we came to that conclusion that Jesus, the Son of God, is indeed God in the flesh. Now, we want to continue along that theme. We don't want to repeat ourselves, but we do want to continue along that theme in order that we might better acquaint ourselves with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is none like him. The Bible would say he's the fairest among 10,000. And he is a most glorious individual. And when we look at him, and when we seek to find out about him, It is in order that our faith might be encouraged, that it might be fed. And when opposition might come our way, when those who are of a different persuasion may try to persuade us, that we have a reason for the hope that is within us. And therefore it is with that in mind that we tackle these things and we seek to meditate upon them that we might be encouraged that if Christ is our Lord and Savior, then he truly is a glorious person and he is is worthy of all our admiration and all our trust even in the difficult and the dark times that we might live or that we might go through I've got a fairly lengthy quote here I want to quote to you. It's from a person called James Alan Francis, and it's from the last century. And he's talking here about Christ. Quote, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He goes on. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends run away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he stands... As the central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I see that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as has this one solitary life. And how true that is. Well, when we go to our text, friends, which says, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. What does it mean? What is this text teaching us? Well, generally, friends, when we come and we look at this prayer, We have to acknowledge that when we go to expound it, that we will never plumb the depths of this prayer. But that should not stop us from seeking to draw important and relevant things for our edification. Here we have the prayer of the second person in the Trinity to the first person, God. And indeed, this is unique. This is overwhelming for us. And we, po- we cannot possibly grasp all that is in this prayer. But I put it to you that in this text here, he is describing a saved individual. He is describing a Christian. He is describing someone who has eternal life. This is what it's about. This is eternal life, he says. That they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And what he's saying there is that the true believer, in some real way, he knows the true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Now, this would apply to his apostles. First of all, in this, in this prayer here, he prays for himself. Then he prays for his apostles. And then he prays for people who will believe as a result of the apostles. Now, why do I say that this would apply to the apostles? Well, I say it, friends, because it is to encourage us. The apostles, at this time, when Jesus offered this prayer in in their earshot, when he offered that prayer, they were far from perfect. Their knowledge was not great. Oh yes, they had been with Jesus for three years, but they really didn't know about the resurrection. They didn't know about many things about the Lord Jesus. They were, they were largely ignorant, although Jesus Christ had taught them intimately over a period of three years, and they had walked with him. But even with all. Of their ignorance and of course we are not in any sense scolding them far from it because when we look at the Apostles we see ourselves but I raise this to you to your attention that you might realize that they knew the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent now they didn't know them to perfection but yet, they were ones who possessed eternal life. And therefore, this can be applied to ourselves today. This is a hallmark of a Christian. To know God and to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? To know God. Because the Bible would teach us, certainly. if we go to Romans, to the first chapter in Romans, that all of us have some knowledge of God. And there is a knowledge so that the Bible would say that we have no excuse for our unbelief. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not the kind of knowledge he's talking about here. In order to be saved, in order to be a, a real Christian, There are two things we must know, according to this verse here. We must know God. We must know he's a holy God. We must know he's a a righteous God. We must know he is a a pure God. We must know that he has a, a hatred of sin. We must be aware of something, of the character of Almighty God. But we also must know, on the other hand, Christ. And what are we to know about Christ? We are to know about his glorious redemption that he provided for his people on Calvary's tree. We are to know about his mediatorial office, that he is our prophet, priest, and king. We are to know, above all things, that Jesus Christ has a wonderful and a glorious love for sinners, a love for his people. These are just some of the things that we are to know concerning God and concerning Christ. Now, many people will say they know God. Many religions will talk about God. But if they don't know Christ, then they don't know God. And if we simply say that we know Christ and we don't know God, then our faith is not what it should be. The Bible tells us here that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And really, therefore, we have, I do believe, the two essential foundations for saving christianity and that's what we're about it's about saving christianity we're about we know the one true and the living god and we know jesus christ who has saved us by his life and death and resurrection now this is important for every single christian if i was to ask you tonight Who would you say is the most experienced Christian in the world? I'm sure if you know your Bibles at all, you would instantly put your hand up and say, well, surely it's the Apostle Paul. And of course, I would agree. He is without doubt the most experienced godly Christian that ever walked upon the face of this earth. He he received divine revelations he wrote a large part of the of the new testament he had visions of heaven itself that he was not able to communicate that's the kind of experience the apostle paul had but do you know what he says in philippians here we're talking about knowing principally jesus christ do you know what he says in philippians Chapter three, verses eight and nine. Let me read them. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He is telling us in these two verses many things, but he is telling us he lost a lot of things, many things, but whatever he lost, he counts them but done in comparison to the knowledge. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 10, he goes on and says this that I may know him. Paul, surely you know him already. Yes, he does know him, but he wants to know him more and more. And we might say in simple form, he doesn't just simply want to know about him, he wants to know him. Now there is a difference. Oh, yes, we must know about him before we will ever really know him. But this is what he's striving on for. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Here's an experienced Christian, the most experienced Christian. What's his longing? What's his desire? What's his hope? What's all his effort? if you like in this life. What's it all geared towards that I may know him? This is what this is talking about. That they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And therefore, we are, if we're Christians, we'll embark on an exciting journey. We are to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I'm speaking quite simplistic here, but I'm sure it might strike strike a nerve with some of us. We know Jesus in the sense that he is our savior and our sins are forgiven. And if you like, we have this great hope that is before us through what he has done on Calvary's tree. Our eternal future is secure. He is our Savior. And many just seem to think, well, that's it. Well, the Bible says, no, that's not all of it. You're to know the Lord Jesus Christ more and more and more. And what's more, This will never end. It will never end in glory. You'll still have this desire, goal, aim to know more of Jesus Christ. Well, we want to look at his person tonight then, that we might know more of him. Knowing Jesus Christ is the title to the sermon. Do we know or maybe do we need to remember do we need to bring it back to remembrance that jesus has infinite knowledge infinite knowledge earlier on in john chapter 16 as jesus was talking to his disciples and teaching them and uh, trying to instruct them in the way that he's going and he's going to go away and he's going to come up, come back again and This was all too much for them, but they came to the conclusion, now are we sure that thou knowest all things. The Lord Jesus Christ is one who knows all things. We can hide nothing from him. Now for the true-hearted, genuine Christian, this is not a problem. This is not a concern. His life is an open book, and he's quite happy that the Lord Jesus Christ knows all about him knows what he says, knows what he thinks, knows what his actions, nothing's hidden from him and he's nothing to fear. And this is a wonderful comfort to the true child of God. He may be going through difficulties. He may be going through trials. He might think he's on his own, but then he realizes why Jesus knows. Jesus knows where I'm going, what I'm doing. Jesus knows the trials and difficulties. Jesus knows that this is not a situation I would have chosen of myself. I'm here by the providence of God. I'm in this difficult position and I relax and I rejoice that Jesus Christ knows it. He knows because he has infinite knowledge of all things. We could draw our attention to that time is recorded in the gospels when they they brought the paralytic four of his friends carried him on a stretcher and they wanted to present him before jesus and of course at this time in the ministry of jesus what was it like he was thronged out and they couldn't get near him but did they stop did they turn away did they go back no they went up on the roof opened a few tiles and and dropped the man down so that he landed at the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus saw this and saw their faith, what did he say, son, thy thy sins be forgiven thee? What a thing to say. The Lord Jesus Christ said this to this man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees who were there at the front, they began to think to themselves and reasoned in themselves, not with one another, but within themselves. And Jesus says to them, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? They were they were accusing him of blasphemy. That's what their thoughts were. How can this man forgive sins? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And he said, Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven. And they took offense with it. But the point is, friends, Jesus knew their hearts. Knew their hearts. Earlier on, again, in John's gospel, when Jesus began to be discerning in his doctrine, and when he began to speak about difficult things concerning his, his mission, concerning the gospel, Many people turned their backs on Jesus. And Jesus said to Peter, or the disciples, will you also go? And Peter says, Lord, to whom thou hast the words of eternal life. But the point is, Jesus knew those who would turn away. He knew them before they turned away. He knew what was in a man. He knew all these things. Colossians tells us of Christ, of whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's your Savior, Christian. That's Him. He has infinite knowledge. And again, we reiterate only God has this kind of knowledge. He has infinite knowledge. What a comfort to the people of God. Notice also, the Bible tells us, he is everywhere present. It's quite remarkable when you look at Matthew chapter 18. And when you come across that section where Jesus is dealing with church discipline, about when two believers fall out, and when they go through the process and the, and uh, there 's not a restoration though the, the person who has done the offending refuses to repent, and Jesus would tell the innocent person to take their matter to the church, and if the offending brethren will, brother will not be reconciled then they are to discipline that person and to excommunicate them. And what does he say to them when they're undertaking church discipline? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, Jesus and his body is only in one place. We're not like those who believe that the body of Jesus is present. But what he's talking about there is that he is present everywhere by his spirit. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's a promise, friends, that we have tonight. We gather in the name that's above every name. We gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is among us. Not physically, but he is by his spirit. Did he not say to his own disciples just before he ascended to heaven? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Another promise to his people as they would go out, as they would take part in the, in the Great Commission, that they would not be left as orphans. Jesus would be with them, not by his bodily presence, but by his Spirit. That's the same Savior we have today. In all that we engage in, Christ is with us by his Spirit. He has said, never will I leave thee, nor forsake thee. Thirdly, concerning Christ, how we are to know him. We are to realize again that he is the creator. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the universe, everything. Colossians, again, in the first chapter, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. That's talking about the things we can see in the spiritual world that's all around us that we cannot see. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. That's all been attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great creator who spoke. He demonstrated that when he fed the 5,000. There was the creator doing his work that only God can do. (coughs) John says, in his opening verses of John chapter 1. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything has the stamp of the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10, where... The apostle seeks again to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ that they might put their faith and hope and trust upon him and that they would not turn their backs upon Christianity. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Christian, when you trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of god you are trusting upon the creator the one who spoke and brought all things into being only god can create there's another one fourthly that's a marvel to the christian we know that the lord jesus christ is the one who can forgive sins but did we ever really think did we ever really take it on board that it's only God who can forgive sins. We're very familiar with the fact that Jesus Christ forgives sins, but have we ever added on this bit that only God can forgive sins? We go back to that incident when they brought the the man on on the, the blanket. And they lowered him down to the ground. They quite rightly said, who can forgive sins but God alone? They were quite right. There was nothing wrong with their theology as far as that was concerned. Their problem is they did not recognize or acknowledge that there in front of them was none other than the Son of God who has authority, who can forgive sins. Only God can do this. Only Jesus Christ can do it. This is one of his unique offices. He alone can forgive sins. No one else. Only God. Only Christ. Another one too, we might notice. He accepts and receives worship. We know in the the Bible that to worship anyone other than God is idolatry. It's a breach of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But there are several occasions in the Bible when Jesus accepted worship. Peter the Apostle wouldn't accept worship. He went to Cornelius, and Cornelius bowed before him to worship him. Peter says, get up, I'm only a man myself. He wouldn't accept worship. The angels, they won't accept worship. They know it's only to be given to God. An angel in Revelation 22, he wouldn't accept worship. Worship God only. But Jesus accepted worship. And he accepted that people should pray to him and through him. John 14, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Wise men, when they came with their gifts, they worshipped the Christ. Those in the boat, in that incident that we looked at in the Lord's Day morning, they worshipped him. And Jesus did not in any sense tell them to stop. He accepted it. The blind man, when he was healed in John chapter 9, When he found out that he was Lord and Christ, he worshipped him. And Jesus accepted it. Thomas, as we've noticed on other occasions, he says, My Lord and my God. And after the resurrection, the disciples, they all worshipped him. Only God is to be worshipped. Jesus accepted it. Again, telling us clearly that our Savior is none other than God in the flesh. We also notice something else. The Bible tells us clearly that there's going to be a day of judgment. A general day when all flesh shall stand before God and be judged. Well, that judge will be Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we are told. And therefore, he alone will be the judge, Christ. Again, demonstrating to us clearly that he is God in the flesh. For only God can judge the world. And finally, Christ is the only Savior. This is maybe what we know more of, Jesus Christ, than anything else. He is the Savior. That's what his name means. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now we may well be familiar with this. And indeed it's good if we are. But do we realize that only God can save? Only God. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can save. This belongs exclusively to him. We are to know these things and many more things about Jesus Christ, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent." The more we know of Christ, friends, the more that we will love him, and the more that we will serve him, and the more that we will trust him. Because ultimately that's what it means to knowing Jesus Christ. It's not just knowing facts. It is actually knowing him, knowing him as a person. And when we know him as we are urged in this text and in throughout the whole of the the Bible, it is that we would love him, that we would serve him, and that we would trust him, and that we would commit ourselves unto him, for he alone Is the only one that can save and save to the uttermost. Knowing Jesus Christ, may God.